Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. It's time to reimagine therapy and what it means to be a therapist. We are human beings who can now present ourselves as whole people with authenticity, purpose, and connection, especially now when therapists must develop a personal brand to market their practices. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm, and with me is my partner, Katie Vernoy. And Katie, I've been thinking that, you know, one of the ha- hazards of our profession is that if I'm not working, I'm not making any money. So I would really like to have some ways to make money while I'm not working. You're so lazy, Kurt. Why don't you not just do all the work all the time? I don't get it. As, you know, I'm looking forward to my future, I'm realizing just how tiring that that actually is. All right. All right. Well, fortunately for us today, we have someone that can help you with that. Maureen Warbach is our group practice specialist and expert, and we would love to uh, share her with you. So we are so excited to have you here. Maureen, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing with the group practice exchange. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk to you guys about group practice work. It's probably one of my favorite things to talk about. So I have a group practice here in Chicago with two locations and just about 20 people working at my practice now. Nice. And I also have the group practice exchange, which is my coaching practice that solely focuses on helping people start and grow their group practices. Great. What is something or some things that people should consider as they might be looking at starting a group practice? I think one of the things that I see the most is that people look at one or two factors only when thinking about starting a group practice. And it's either that they are full and they're turning down or having to refer people out and they think I'm losing out on more money. And I feel like although that's a good way to look at if it will work out for you to have more people in your practice, I think the best thing to do first is to make a business plan and see if that is actually part of your vision. I've seen so many people hire their first independent contractor thinking I'm just going to have this side person taking my extra referrals and I'll make a little bit of passive income along the way. And it's not that easy. Not that it has to be really difficult, but it's not as easy as finding someone and then making passive income from from that person. So I like to tell people that one of the first things that they should do is really put a business plan together and see if that fits in with the larger theme of their what they want to do with their business. What would be some of the things in their business plan that would suggest that they're ready to start a group practice? One of those things would be that having employees or independent contractors is one of their longer term goals. I've had a lot of people who have not even 
even thought about having that and have just said, I have extra office space. I'm just going to plop someone into. And they're not really thinking of it like that this clinician is someone who's really working for them. And then it goes to a whole nother topic of whether you should sublease uh, to a clinician if you're not looking to have a group practice. I think a lot of people don't think about that and they just hire an independent contractor, usually not the right way. Um, And then realize that maybe the relationship they really wanted to have with that person is a being a sublesser versus actually having uh, an independent contractor working for you. So that's probably the biggest thing to look at. That makes sense. It sounds like there's a lot of infrastructure to put in place if you're actually going to bring somebody into your practice versus having someone lease some space from you. And if it's not part of your plan to do that infrastructure and have kind of grow the practice larger, it's not a great idea to take on, you know, interns or independent contractors or whatever. And I think people just don't realize there's so many ways that you can set your business up. It doesn't have to be a group practice. It can be that you sublease and some, you know, people don't even think about that as an option. And so they think, you know, I need to just find myself someone who can be an independent contractor, but they don't realize that that person's going to look to them for everything from referrals to how, you know, how to set themselves up to needing to put policies in place, even, even with independent contractors. Whereas if you have someone that you're subleasing to, then um, you're a little more hands off. But also if you have an independent contractor or an employee, you have to remember that they're representing your business. And it's very different than if you subleased an X person has their business that they're doing counseling or whatever in one of your spare offices and they're paying you X amount of dollars per month to do that. Yeah, it's a really different relationship. What's your story as far as how you moved into developing a group practice? So I probably fall into the category that I would say is not the way to go. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When I first started, I was definitely, I was full and I've mentioned this in a couple other podcasts, but I'm an only child and I'm pretty introverted and like to work by myself. So it was not part of my plan to have at this point, 20 people working with me that I have to delegate things to and, and kind of be in charge of. But I initially started it because I thought I have this these extra spaces. So exactly what I said not to be you know, looking <laughs> at, kind of what I did, all a learning process, which is why I like to tell people what not to do. But what was kind of lucky for me was that Chicago, I think it was in 2012, 2013, when I already had my first employee, there was a Chicago small business plan competition. And I was like, this is great because I was too lazy to make a business plan and wasn't quite sure how useful it actually was. You know, people say to make business plans and then they think, you know, why, why should I do it? I I know it all in my head what I want. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity to force myself into writing a business plan and maybe, you know, win. What I learned from that is how useful having a business plan really was. And it helped me sort of shape that I actually want to have at the time, not 20 people, but I thought two or three people Mm -hmm. to, to work with me in a sort of collaborative way so I wasn't alone and so that I could also refer clients that I couldn't see. So that was kind of the evolution of it. And then as I became comfortable, my business plan changed a little bit, which is totally okay and normal. Your business plan doesn't need to stay the same. Absolutely. Life of your business. And uh, as I grew and became more comfortable in my leadership skills and my policies and procedures in place and just overall became more comfortable with the way my business was, my business plan then changed and evolved a little bit to a point where I wanted to have more clinicians and more space. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other mistakes 
mistakes that you made along the way that you tell people not to do? Probably my biggest mistake. And luckily I haven't made any detrimental mistakes, but I was pretty unaware of how much I should be paying attention to finances. I'm really good financially. So I'm lucky in that case, but Mm -hmm. I, I didn't fully understand what was going on with my business finances and how to categorize it. And if anyone knows about Profit First, that's what I use now, which is you're very aware of where your finances are and how much money you're allocating to certain aspects of your practice. But years ago, I I wasn't. And I was good at knowing X amount came in, don't spend more than that X amount. And so I never was in underwater or anything like that. But I wasn't aware of you asked me how much do you spend on marketing? I would I would say, you know, off the top of my head, I think maybe 150. But as we know, we often underestimate or overestimate. We're usually not on target when it comes to our finances, if we have to guess it. One of the most important things you can do is really spend time every month looking at your finances, then going back to your business plan, which has a whole section on finances so that you know if you're going in the direction that you planned on going. Yeah, that's so important. I think the the finances and, and the budget and the kind of the profit first model is something that a lot of clinicians just don't even think about, you know, and it becomes more and more important as you grow your practice, as there's more people relying on you for income and that you're managing marketing, not just for yourself, but for other people. So it becomes huge to make sure that you know what your numbers are. Yeah. How much of your weekly time is devoted to actually seeing clients versus doing administrative tasks? At this point, I see about five clients a week in my counseling. And then obviously, I'm not going to count the group practice exchange in that, but I see five clients and I probably spend maybe 10 hours on admin stuff. And so I like to say, if you're a new group practice owner, don't do what I'm doing right now because it takes a while to get to that point because I can sometimes also do five hours of admin tasks and and be very minimal, but it takes a while to get there. When I was first starting off within my first five to seven clinicians, I was still seeing between 10 and 15 clients and I was in the office doing admin related work and overseeing everything probably between 10 and 15 hours a week. As I've grown, I've hired other people to be support people. So I have two admin staff and I have a clinical director. So I don't have to be there for every supervision minute. When a clinician needs help, she can go to my clinical director. And so a lot of time has been taken off on my end because I pay for that support. I've delegated that. Sure, sure. I have to imagine, especially for those busy clinicians that have been really good at branding themselves, that when they're getting the phone calls, when they're making this transition over to a group practice, how do I explain to somebody who's calling up, hey, I I really love your, your marketing. You seem like the great therapist for me. How do you convince them to see another therapist in your practice? So I know this is probably the number one struggle solo practice owners have when they hire their first one or two therapists. Although it's not always feasible right from the beginning, the best thing is having someone else answering the phone for you because then they're not reaching you directly and then you you don't have to feel like you're convincing them of that. But I get that when you're first starting off, there are certain things that you can spend money on and and it might not be having an admin or a virtual assistant doing your phones. And so if that is the case, then the best thing that you can do is when someone calls is to say flat out that you're full because I think what a lot of group practice owners or therapists do is that they feel guilty. And so they're like, "Mm, I don't know, I I can't fit you in. I'm, you know, sorry. And then they have this, you can sense the guilt in the therapist and then a client is more likely to try to convince them, well, I I can come at any time or, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm flexible. 
and then you get, you know, suckered into this, you know, pigeonhole where you're trying to get yourself out of it. So the best thing you can do if you are answering the phones is to have a script on hand where you know you're just going to say no because you're full, which is a whole another issue that clinicians have is that they feel like they have to take them mm-hmm. because they are afraid they're either not going to get more referrals or they feel like this client really wants them so that they, they owe it to them to find a spot for them. So if you take that issue away and you know for a fact that you are full and you really want to be able to give new clients over to a clinic and that clinician is actually a good fit, then you verbalize it in that way. You say, I'm actually not taking any new clients. And what I'll do on my website is I'll say only daytime available or not taking new clients. So they don't even try to come straight to me. And if those few do go through and still try to get in with me, I'll say I'm full, but what? tell me a little bit about what you're coming in for, what you're looking for. And then I'll see if a therapist in my practice fits that niche area. And if they do, I feel confident in it. And I can, as you say, convince them by saying, actually, Gail is a great therapist who specializes in trauma work just like I do. Why don't you try her out? She has something open blank day. And because I'm confident in that more often than not, a client is willing to try that other therapist out. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I love that you talk about the guilt and, and kind of fitting people in. It's something I talk about all the time. It's this kind of sacrificial helping syndrome where people will sacrifice their schedule, their time, their money for clients. And when this happens with group practice owners, I've seen a lot of group practice owners hire interns, hire other clinicians, independent contractors, and they keep taking clients. And then the, the folks that they've hired get really upset because here's somebody that's barely managing them because they have so many cases and they're too busy to manage them and they're, they're not giving the clients away. How do you suggest kind of shifting that mindset so people get into the, the role of being the group practice owner? Yeah, I think you hit a good point. And part of that also is that group practice owners tend to spend more money in the beginning. And so then they feel like they have to up their clinical hours because that is the money that they can potentially take. Whereas when you first hire a therapist, depending on how you, you know, how much money you're putting into each therapist and how much money you're spending, you can do it where each each new therapist, even from your first one, brings in passive income. But I see so many group practice owners who put a lot of money in towards their first one or two therapists that they are actually losing money. So then they feel this need to, on top of the guilt and all that, this need to, I, I have to 
I can't be upside down. I need to be taking these clients because if I take this client, I can take quote unquote, hundred percent of that income versus when I give it to my therapist, I'm getting blank percentage of it or a blank dollar amount of that. So what I say is it's a longer term game. One, if the problem is that your first few clinicians are costing you money or you feel like they're costing you money to look at your expenses and figure out a way to change that because there is a way to have your first few therapists be income for you versus seeing them as an expense. The second part is that you have to shift your mindset to looking at the long-term game. And it might initially be that you're not bringing in as much income and you're only getting X percent, 40% or 30% or whatever it is versus 100% of it if you brought in that client. But over the longer term, you're going to make more money by being able to have time to invest in your clinicians, being able to have time to invest in marketing and everything else that goes into being a group practice owner, which you won't have if you're using that time to see clients. Like you mentioned, you're going to have clinicians who feel like they're resentful because they're not getting as many new referrals as they want, but also they're going to feel like that they're not seeing you as the group practice owner. I have a lot of time where when I'm doing my admin stuff, my door is open. So people can just pop in. If I hear another door opening, I'll go walk over there and see you know, what that therapist is doing. So a lot of my time is also spent on just being around so that they see me and feel like I'm there for them physically, literally there. That's awesome. I got to imagine that part of making it to where the clinicians who are working for you are getting more clients is advertising for them. How do you advertise differently for a group practice than somebody in a solo practice? So the thing that I found that works for me that I tell everyone they should try is when you're solo, you're marketing for yourself. Your brand is yourself. When you're a group practice, your brand is your group practice, not you. If you make your the, your brand still be you, your, like your group practice is you, then clients are going to call wanting you, which goes back to one of your questions a few, a few minutes ago, which is how do you get people to see your clinicians and not yourself? So what I what I say is it's a two-prong marketing. So you have to do it in a two-prong sort of way. One is that you should do more marketing on the back end versus on the front end, meaning doing things like blogging, social media management, print ads, if that works in your area, or Facebook ads or Google AdWords, doing things on the back end that doesn't have your face right in front of it. And then some of the face-to-face does also work. So networking within a larger scheme. So not one-on-one marketing because people, I'm sure you guys know, but people refer to people. People don't refer to group practices. They refer to Mm -hmm. individual people. And so the only face-to-face stuff that I'll do is if it's presentations or if it's networking with other professionals where there's a lot of people. And so then I can talk about, you know, my clinician. But the second half of it is the front end, which is the marketing face-to-face stuff. And that's what the clinician should be doing because one, and this is, it depends on how you, how you are as a group practice owner and what you believe in terms of your philosophy and vision. But for me, I feel like my group practice is successful when the clinicians in my practice are wanted by people in the community, not when urban wellness is, it's very rare that people just want to come because of an urban wellness. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody does. People want to come see my clinical director, Lauren, because she's constantly going to the schools and meeting with the school social workers and advocating with her clients at IEP meetings that then those parents are talking to other parents and saying, oh, Lauren is amazing. She works at urban wellness. And so, you know, she gets a ton of referrals because she's doing the front end work of putting her 
face out there. And so people are referring to her specifically. If I go, I use this example a lot. I have a CADC, a certified drug and alcohol counselor. I don't do any CADC work. So if I was to go to a rehab center nearby and try to talk about this clinician that I have, the likelihood of that rehab center referring to my practice is not as high as if she was to go there when she can describe everything that she does, talk about her CADC and the work she does with clients who struggle with drug and alcohol abuse is much more going to be much more successful than if I'm trying to talk to them about this random therapist I have who they can't envision. So is that part of the training? Because I'm imagining that there's folks who are coming into your group practice because they don't want to have their own solo practice and it could be for other reasons. But one of the reasons is probably the infrastructure you've set up as well as, you know, the referral sources that you've already managed. Do you train them on in-person networking? At this point, for me, it's not important that they are marketing every single month. So what I have a system in place where they can get a bonus every six months. And that bonus is based off of if they blog twice and network twice in that six months, which and by network, I mean, you can even send an email. I'm not picky about it. I In the beginning, when you're first starting a group practice, you will need that your clinicians to do a little bit more of that marketing work just because you're not going to be getting 50 referrals a week like a larger group practice might. You might be getting three or four referrals a week. And so mm-hmm. for, your, for those clinicians to fill up at a pace that won't make them leave and think that they're never going to be full, they will need to do a little bit of marketing. And so for those smaller group practices or the ones that are starting off, my suggestion is to have a rate that you'll pay for marketing. That's how I did it. So I paid, I think it was $30 an hour and I capped it at three hours per month because I obviously didn't want clinicians to market 700 hours in a month and then (laughs) (laughs) me me not be able to pay that. So I I said, you know, everyone as you're first starting to build up and, and nobody will market once they're full. So as they fill up, I will pay $30 an hour up to three hours per month. You can obviously do more than that if you want to fill up quicker. Once your name is out there as a clinician, it is like a snowball effect. If you're a good therapist and you're there for your clients, you don't have to do it as much and you'll still be getting those organic referrals from parents or whoever your referral sources are. So you have to do less of it. And then also as the group practice gets larger, it just becomes more visible. And especially if the group practice owner is doing that back end marketing, it'll become more visible and then you'll naturally have more calls coming in where then an intake person can make sure that the right clinician is getting that client. What kind of clinicians do you look to hire? So I can tell you what I do and you'll find that group practice owners, this is one of the areas where you can it can really vary depending on looking at your business plan, what you want. So there's some group practices that's their whole group practice is one specialty and so that'll play a role in who they look for. So for me, I have my vision was to help as many people in the community as possible. So I hire people with different specialties so that the likelihood of someone calling in our community and needing help, the likelihood of them having a therapist that fits their need is going to be higher at my practice. Mm-hmm. That's just part of my plan. But there's group practices that have the their vision is to be, you know, the eating disorders specialist of X city. And so then obviously one of their criteria is going to be that they need to find an eating disorder specialist. Another thing I look at in terms of therapist fit is time. This is again, something that can vary practice by practice. I have a lot of fixed costs per clinician. So I I pay for the EHR, which costs X amount of dollars per clinician. I pay for HIPAA compliant email. I pay for the Virtru HIPAA compliant uh, extension, which is an X amount of dollars per person. I have virtual mailboxes. I pay for malpractice. There's all, I have a bunch of things that are per clinician. So that if I hire someone at five hours a week, their cost to revenue ratio is going to be pretty low versus someone who I hire who can work 25 hours a week. So that's something to look at. There's also plenty of practices who don't have as many fixed costs as I do. And so 
so them ha- hiring someone who can work less hours isn't as big of a deal, but you want to look at that base. I've seen so many practice owners start off by hiring someone who can do one day a week or five hours a week or seven hours a week. And then they find that that doesn't actually give them that much passive income or no passive income because they have all of these fixed costs to having that therapist there. So for me, I require a minimum of 15 hours per week because that makes it worth it financially. And I require, which at this point, I don't know anyone who'd work 15 hours in one day, but I require at least two days a week because I want a client to be able to, if they cancel an appointment, be able to be seen within that same week, potentially be able to be seen again. And if you do once a week, I feel like if the client is sick or if you're sick, then they're going to have to wait two weeks between sessions, which I think for some clients, that's not that's not a good fit. So for me, that those are the kind of the basic ones. And then in terms of personality and all of that, I look for someone who likes the family style feel. My practice is very family style. I have W-2 employees, so that plays a role in that. But and if you wanted to have independent contractors, you want to make sure that you have someone who owns their own business because an IC should be in their own business yeah. doing their work in your business. So you want to make sure that they have their own business. You'll want to make sure that they know how to market themselves and they know what it's like to work in private practice and all the work that goes into being an independent contractor in a group practice versus if you're if you have a W-2, it's a little bit different. The expectations you're going to have, you, you'll want someone who wants that family feel. You'll want someone who who's willing to listen to the leader and follow directions and do their notes on time and all of that kind of stuff. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I'm really glad that you brought up the personality aspect in matching with your clinicians. I have a very, very small group practice, and I focus mostly on working with adolescents, wanting to make sure that my clinicians are up on teen culture. So I'd ask a potential employee, tell me about Gangnam Style. (laughs) And he responded with, I don't remember studying that in school, but I think it's a postmodern theory. Oh, no. (laughs) So I was like... Good effort, but I (laughs) want somebody else, (laughs) yes. Yeah, that's actually, that's really great. And another thing going off of what you're saying in terms of personality, I think that's a great type of question to ask, especially if your clinician is going to be working with kids is do they know teen lingo if they're working with teens? Another thing though, too, that I've noticed, and I I guess I should have listed this in my mistakes category in the beginning. Luckily, it worked out in my favor. So there's this really good book called How the World Sees You by Sally Hogshead, where essentially, obviously based off of the name of the book, uh, it talks about how the world sees you. But also it helps as an entrepreneur help you figure out what type of people you need to have working for you because most of us will hire someone or will want to hire someone who's most similar to us. So mm-hmm. in my example, I am pretty introverted and quiet. And if I have a clinician who is being interviewed, who's really outspoken and loud, I will initially be put off by that because it's just kind of the opposite of how I am. And I tend to gravitate towards other quiet and soft-spoken people that might not initially resonate 
resonate with me. But what the book says is that if you hire a bunch of personality characteristics that are similar to you, you're going to lose out. I am not the best at everything. And you want to have people who are different from you personality wise and characteristics wise, because when you put the combination of all of these different personalities and all these different characteristics together, you're going to have a much more solid group practice than if you have, if you're all lopsided on one category. If everyone's soft spoken, you're probably not going to have a great practice of people who want to go out there and market or who want to go out there and do presentations. For sure. Yeah. So I I found that book to be really great because it helped me not automatically be put off by someone who is so different from me in terms of personality. And I I think of it in terms of my clinical director is so much louder than me. (laughs) It works well. But I, when I first started working with her, she was just a clinician at first. I was like, oh, this is going to be really hard because she's just so outgoing and so bubbly and so loud. And she laughs loud. I can hear her from wherever I'm at in the office, which is why she's a clinical director. She can perfect everyone so perfectly. She uh, is also not afraid to to tell a clinician when there's an issue. So I guess long story short is one of the issues that I see is that people tend to hire people who are very similar to them. And that isn't always the most helpful when it comes to owning a business because you mm-hmm. want a little bit of everything. Yeah. What is one of the, the funniest or strangest questions you've asked in an interview? Yeah. You're kind of putting me on the spot with that question. Um, <laughs> So I'm not sure that I ask very funny questions, but I but I guess the way that I get this question figured out for myself when it comes to personality and characteristics is to ask, how would other people describe you? I know it's not a very funny or fun question, but it gives me a sense of how the world sees them, right? Mm-hmm. And how they think the world sees them. So that's one of the questions I'll ask. But also a lot of it is just the dynamic in conversation with them. You get a sense of what their personality or their quirks are in in the interview process. I've done a number of presentations on how to hire pre-licensed individuals throughout the years. And one of the things that I talk about is that the very first question that I ask in the interviews isn't even out loud. It's, can I stand this person for the next three or four years? And <laughs> just is really testing in on my my gut feeling of like, is this going to be a good match? Is this somebody that I want to work with and somebody who's going to reflect well on me, which hits on a lot of the points that you've talked about. And you just hit on another point that I didn't bring up, which is go with your gut. I hear so often that people after doing an inter- interview are still not sure or they feel feel there's they're being pulled away for some reason, but they feel like, well, their specialty would fit perfectly, but there's something that is still pulling me away from them. And yes, going with your gut, you have to go with your gut because you don't want to be put in a situation where you feel miserable with that person for X amount of years, but you also don't want to feel like you're in a position where you have to let them go. And I obviously that's something that many group practice owners may have to go through at some point anyways, because we're not perfect and we don't always hire the perfect people. And not everyone presents themselves in a way, you know, people try to present themselves in a, in a better way at the interview process. And so it's not always that who they present themselves as at the interview is what will actually show up later and vice versa as a group practice owner. You know, yeah. you can say all these great things and, and not uh, deliver to your clinicians later. But yes, I think going with your gut is also one of the most important things in the interview process. Don't hire someone, especially in the beginning. People are really eager once they make that decision to have a group practice. They get eager to hiring someone and then they potentially hire the first or second person that they interview because they're not sure how many more will come through the door. They don't want to wait anymore. And so, yes. And they fall in love 
I think that's the thing that I see so often is people fall in love with the person that comes in the room. And so then they, they diminish the negatives, they diminish the things that don't line up, they diminish their gut instincts, because it's like, oh, this person seems so nice. They'll, you know, and, and I think there's, you know, it sounds like there's a caveat that you might put, go with your gut, but don't go with your, your you know, kind of the, go with the informed gut, not the one that says, I want another person who's quiet like me or that kind of stuff. So it's, there is still a balance there. And it sounds like there's, you know, a lot of investment that someone really should have before they hire somebody. They, they need to do some self-awareness. Who, who would I instinctually be drawn to? Who do I need to, to be there? There's, you know, making sure you don't hire the first person that walks in unless they're perfect. Right. <laughs> and so what do you do when, when people, you know, you've got this wonderful group practice going and then you have clinicians who now are leaving to set up shop down the street? Like, how do you manage that? How do you handle that part of it? I have to say I've been lucky. And ever since my first hire, everyone has stayed. I know that's not the norm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say it is. I attribute it to the fact that I spend a lot of my time uh, on workplace culture. But given that... I have had conversations with everyone because I'm also a, I coach people on starting group practices. So I have this, I know that if you are a business minded person that you should be able to go that route. And I don't want to ever have any clinician of mine feel guilty for wanting to leave and start set up shop because I know when that time happens, it's not going to be because they don't like working here. It's going to be because it's part of who they are. They know that that the next step in their life is to have their own solo practice. And so I've said to them, you know, if that time ever comes, you guys know, that I coach people and group practices. I also, I I niche in that, but I obviously know how to start a solo practice as well. And I'd love for you to come to me so that we can, I can help you through that process because when I started, I didn't have any friends starting their solo practice. Facebook didn't have these groups. I mean, Mm -hmm. six six years ago, that wasn't around. So I was winging it and I would have loved to have help. And so my hope is that if everyone knows that, that if that was the case, that we would have a good amicable split where they can feel comfortable setting up shop. Now, when you, I think, I don't know if you meant said set up shop right next door, if that was part of your question. <laughs> I, I, I get the resentment that group practice owners feel when someone leaves and take quote unquote, air quoting here, uh, clients with. I have done the soul searching and a few years ago said, I don't own clients. And although I've done a lot of work to bring in the referrals, because my clinicians at this point, they don't have to market. I, everyone could fill up within two weeks, 25 clients if they wanted to. So they don't have to market if they didn't want to. That's so awesome. In, in some way, I feel like I, I've done a lot of work to to have my group practice's name be known in the community enough that calls are coming in organically that way. And even despite that, which I think is one of those cases where the clinician doesn't have to do a lot of work, really the practice is bringing in the referrals. Even though that is happening, I still feel like the fact that a client stays has nothing to do with the group practice. The fact that a client stays with a clinician is because of the relationship with the clinician. And Absolutely. so I've made the conscious decision because it's really easy to go the route of feeling like I did all this work these clients are mine and like hoard them but you know some years ago I made the decision that if anyone ever leaves I want the client to go wherever they want to go and so even if they did set up shop next door it would suck for a second but if you think about it if you think about it there's more than enough clients if I'm getting this many referrals one person moving half a block away or whatever is not going to break my business and if I'm a smaller business it just means that I have to double up my marketing efforts. Yeah. I love that you set up a culture where you're so supportive of the people that you bring in. And I think I'm sure that's why they've stayed, even though you've said, Hey, I can coach you. I can, you know, help you what you take. The clients are yours. You know, yes, I brought them in, but at this, you know, once you've connected with them, 
them and, and created that relationship, they're yours. It just, it seems like there is a lot of fear that goes into what if they leave me? What if I do all this, take all this time, all this money to train them and fill them up and then they take it elsewhere. And I think that's the wrong mindset. It sounds like it's really about how do we nurture and grow the people under our care so that if they go out there, there's, there's a positive referral relationship. There's a positive colleague out in the world and and it just, I'm sure it creates a strong culture within urban wellness. So that's a little bit of work to get to that mindset, because I think if you talk to other people, the go-to is to feel like I've done all of this work and how rude is that for you to leave and then take the clients. But uh, I think we can all make the decision to say, if this clinician wants to start on their own, who am I to stop them? I did the same thing. I worked at a group practice. I, I moved 20 miles away to make a good separation, <laughs> but um, still I, there was a point when I said it's time for me to go off on my own and I wasn't met with resistance over it and I wouldn't want to meet the clinician with resistance and take it personally. Maureen, where can people find you online for either your coaching services to help them develop a group practice or for people listening in the Chicago area who might want to come to work for you in this wonderful group culture that you're describing? How can people find you online? So my group practice is www.urbanwellnesscounseling.com. And then if you are looking for any help with starting a group practice, I don't do solo practice stuff. There's a lot of coaches out there for that. So I'm, I focus specifically on starting and scaling a group practice. You can find me at www.thegrouppracticeexchange.com. And I also have a Facebook group called The Group Practice Exchange Group. Great. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and insights with us today. And for anybody listening who's going to be at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference in December in Anaheim, please stop by our booth. We'll be in the exhibit hall. We'll be live feeding a lot of banter just with us and <laughs> anybody who will stop by our table, but uh, also for a chance to appear on one of our future podcasts, please come by to say hello. And until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy and Maureen Werbach. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months.